Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Lynn Pettinger, who's an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick, about her new book, What's Wrong with Work, which is published by Policy Press. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Nice to talk to you. This is a fascinating book. Um, I think it it, it does a couple of things that are quite uh, rare in contemporary academic texts, which is that it takes a really important social problem that's, you know, part of the way we live now, synthesizes a whole load of quite complex and in some cases quite esoteric academic theory, but makes it really understandable and, and you know, makes it kind of really straightforward to read. And, and one of the things that struck me about the book was a question about how you came to be interested to write it and why in particular you write, you wanted to write a book that did that synthesis and addressed um, this important contemporary question about what's wrong with work. Yeah, well, in my um, in my complete academic arrogance, I um, I came up with the title quite a while ago, and I was trying to persuade some friends that we could do an edited collection that was really an exploration of the very worst forms of work um, in order to just kind of do some stuff that looked globally at work and think about why why work was so bad. And I couldn't get anyone interested in that, which I think is a shame. But I had the title and, um, and then Policy got in touch and said, are you interested in writing a book about the gig economy? Which I really wasn't interested in because one of my big arguments about how we study work is that we tend to focus too deeply on one specific area of work. So gig economy becomes a thing that we have to do lots and lots of work on. And what gets lost there is a sense that something that seems like a new phenomenon like the gig economy has a history to it, has a geography to it, and it links to all kinds of other forms of work. So in my academic arrogance, I thought I'll do a more general book about work. And I had this title and so a book about the ethics and politics of work as it's changing right now. And I thought it would be a fairly straightforward thing to write. Um, An opening section, first half of the book that was about how people have thought about ethics and politics of work. A discussion of the three fields of work um, that I think are particularly interesting at the moment, which is environment, technology and informal economy. And then a conclusion that said what I thought about what's wrong with work. But the more I read about it, the more I came to try to write about it, the less confident I felt with the idea that there could be an answer to that question that the more I thought about it, the more different kinds of questions needed to come into play, I thought. Um, So one of the dominant ways that we think about ethics and politics of work is around the treatment of workers. And this is fundamentally very, very important because this is about what affects people's everyday experience, how they get to work in the morning, how they come home um, and how they're able to live. But it didn't strike me as enough to understand the place of work within... um, contemporary society, its relationships within global capitalism, and the parts of work that didn't reduce to an explanation that was, well, 
neoliberalism has changed the work, world of work and made it much worse. It struck me that there was something more complicated to to think through there. So that was what I was trying to trying to do. I mean, the, the really obvious way to probe that sense of there being something more complicated is is with your uh, take on what we might think of as the kind of history of work. Um, and I was particularly struck quite early on in the book the way that you were keen to to kind of say, look we kind of need to stop talking just about good and bad work and we need to, and again, you gestured to this, you know, historicize this and locate it in a geographic setting as well. Uh, And I suppose, you know, the the key question is, so so what is that um, understanding you've developed about how we should understand that, that history of work? I think I could answer that, um, spend a long time answering that. I think one of the um, really important things for me was to do some thinking about the study of work itself and ask where concepts come from. So a lot of the concepts that people use when they're thinking about work derive from industrial capitalism, from factory work in Europe, specifically in Britain. And that gives us some very, very useful ways for thinking about work. And it gets supplemented by labour process analysis, which looks also at factory work and then extends the idea from factory work to other settings. But there are all forms of work that are missed out of that. Um, So I think if in the history of the study of work, people had taken seriously the role of slavery and colonisation, thought about how slavery was really central to the development of um, industrial capitalism, then we would have some different kinds of concepts. If people had taken seriously the very significant numbers of people who work in domestic service work um, globally, historically, in the present, and how that domestic service work is organised, then again, there'd be a different politics. So one of the things I wanted to do was to draw out those forms of work that weren't always thought about and to try to maybe redress some of the ways in which... um, the first thing you imagine when you think about work is what it's like to do factory work. And that's not to downplay the importance of factory work, but it's to say that well, actually there is more form, there are more forms of work in the world. The second thing that I was thinking about is relates to your, your problem about geography, your question about geography, which also I think is a question about, about scale. So one of the things that we learn when we think about the um, work on a, a global scale and the global interconnections of work. And we learn this through things like, say, supply chain analysis, how um, different kinds of work co-depend on each other. So, and that includes the work from marketing to um, the consumption of uh, different goods, the design of goods and how that affects who ends up making it. So the obvious example would be um, garment manufacturing and the global story about garment manufacturing, the interconnections between of work between different kinds of places. One thing that's going on in there within that, I guess, kind of reorientation away from just a singular vision um, of a particular form of work um, and you know, a, a changing of the territory in which that work takes place is, is the use of a couple of uh, concepts that I quite, found quite quite interesting, or, or maybe actually descriptive terms more than than concepts. But but this idea about particular kinds of work being deleted and invisible, I guess you you've kind of gestured towards that already in terms of that sense of uh, garment production in a global supply chain, which doesn't quite fit that 
you know, industrial revolution, men in factories, probably in uh, the north of England kind of uh, vision of work. And at the same time, points us towards particular kinds of work that often um, aren't paid, uh, tell us things about uh, how we should gender um, our understanding of work. So deleted and invisible, I, I think, would be great examples to help us think about different kinds of work. Yeah, thanks. And I think there's, um, I think both slavery and indentured labour should be thought of as part of those um, invisible kinds of work, as well as all kinds of elements of care work, domestic service work, domestic labour work, which vary in terms of whether how they're organised, so whether they're paid or unpaid, who pays if they are paid. Um, but the other thing that I think often gets deleted is um, the kinds of work that make other work that's very visible possible. And my big example here is um, the technological work. Um, so in many studies of work, technology is a really key story. It's a really important thing. So in any account of the de-skilling of work, there's an argument about the technological substitution of work. But one of the things that gets like hidden from that is the idea that technology is also made. So from my point of view, to pay more attention to, for example, what a software engineer understands about the work process he's trying to capture, and I say he deliberately because they really often very much are um, men, how does the software engineer understand that work process and how do they translate it into um, a, a, an app or whatever that substitutes uh, or transforms the work that's being done. So, and you know, on a kind of slightly similar theme is when we talk about an architect as having built something, then we give a priority to the creative vision of what the architect has done. But anything we know about the detail of how a building gets built means that all kinds of other workers were also involved in influencing the creative production of the building as well as um, how well it stands and how well made it is. So negotiations between creative workers and um, workers who aren't considered to be creative, that really matters to understanding what the finished product looks like. So rather than kind of prioritising one kind of occupation, one form of work, to think about how that work relies on all kinds of other forms of work, which may not have the same uh, status, but which nonetheless does quite a lot to produce whatever is being produced. I mean, one of the things in, in uh, that, that I guess links to, to later on in the book is, is this idea about technology um, and um, the importance of objects. And, and I was quite struck, um, and this sounds a bit strange, but I was quite struck by a discussion about photocopiers in the fourth chapter, um, which I slightly wasn't expecting, but, um, you know, is, is reflecting, I guess, the kind of the importance of these uh, machines in, in academic life. And, you know, we, we, we could talk about photocopiers uh, perhaps, but the photocopier, I guess, it is you're talking about it because you're interested in the idea of talking about invisible or deleted work and dignity and you know how we think about you know good well-paid work and dignity in one's work and one's labor but but actually you're also kind of critical um about that and and you talk about the way that you know recognition 
also comes with limits and contradictions and there are problems and this is one of the things that's wrong with with work to go back back to the title so so i guess the question that comes from that is this thing about why are you so bothered about photocopiers yeah um so the photocopier research done by julian all many many years ago and I've always found it kind of captivating how someone can make um, a very mundane technology so interesting and can show how its function and dysfunction really affects all the work that's possible um, um, around it. And um, it took me a while to realise that that was helping me think about why I was uncomfortable with um visions of dignity at work as something to aspire to and it makes me sound really commercially I know um, because dignity is something that it's kind of impossible to be against because who would say that human dignity is not a desirable thing and it's not that I think that it's not a desirable thing it's just that I think that there are some limits to it and I think that when we think about good and bad jobs or what's wrong with work and we alight on an idea like dignity and then we see, well, what counts as dignity and what doesn't count as dignity, then we do something productive for thinking about what's wrong with work. But we do miss out on some other phenomena that I think affect what work is like and what work does in the world. So in dignity research, it seems to me that the big concern is often with the treatment of some humans by other humans, specifically how management treats its workers. So dignity is part of a hierarchical story in the workplace, which is fine, which is an important thing to say, but which isn't enough. In that traditional dignity story, um, technology appears as a tool of management which also is very reasonable, but again, slightly misrepresents what technology does in the world. So if we think about photocopiers, then we get a slightly different vision of what technology and other kinds of material objects might do to interrupt work, to make work better or worse. So in a mundane example, but mundane things are often really important, um, if your photocopier is regularly breaking, then you cannot very easily do the work that you're trying to do. So a technological failure is a problem and that gets in the way of you being able to reach targets and things like that. In a different example where I also think material objects are powerful or materiality is powerful, if you're someone whose job it is to uh, repair potholes in the road, for example, then how you do that work, what that work feels like, but also what you have to do to do a good job is really affected by um, the materiality of the world around you, most obviously by weather and by seasons. So potholes come when uh, water freezes and generates cracks in tarmac. So changeable weather means that there is more demand for what you're doing. And it means that your repairs have got to be better if they're to last. So there's a whole question about like the quality of the work that you do, perhaps even a sense in which you can feel like you've done good work that's really influenced by the place of that kind of work within the world that surrounds it. So it's not that I think dignity is problematic, but I think in its overwhelming focus on human primacy and the human experience, it really misses out something about the location of human life within um, nature and culture. I mean, that, the other side to, I guess, kind of locating uh, work 
are things that are relational. And um, one thing we, we sort of haven't got to yet, but it but is absolutely crucial, are things like contractual relationships and the um, organisation of work. And I think we could probably extend actually the you know, uh, discussion you've already had about um, seasonality, about materiality, into questions about how is work managed what kinds of uh, organization do we have? How should we think about, you know, kind of contemporary work contracts, both as a way of thinking about dignity in work and its limits, but also as a way of connecting us to, I guess, really kind of bigger theories about contemporary capitalism. You, you, you sort of open up a discussion of neoliberalism later on in, in, in the uh, in, in the sort of the middle part of the book. And it'd be interesting to to kind of think through and understand how it is uh, management, temping, contracts, tell us both about the experience of work, but also about how we're organising society. Yeah, big questions for sure. Um, I'm going to answer it in a way that's kind of the, the opposite of what you asked, which is to talk about the limits of what a big concept like neoliberalism can do to help us to understand those kind of um, phenomena. So precariousness, um, increasing use of temp workers or those kinds of things. Because it strikes me that if a researcher or a writer or someone making an argument rushes very readily to say, oh, well, it's neoliberalism, then I think that is both a flattening of the complexity of differences in the world, a flattening of history, and it generates a sense of hopelessness because how can you be against, how can you possibly like engage with, address something that's kind of so all-consuming? And I think neoliberalism as a way of providing explanations for what's wrong with the world right now, including what's wrong with work, can tend to just limit a little bit too much that... Um, sense in which some of the phenomena that we explain in the contemporary world as being about neoliberalism as having other drivers. So it's a kind of an economy first explanation, something that um, I refer to using ideas from J.K. Gibson Graham around capitalocentrism, that it assumes there's no world that is not reducible to an economic explanation, no form of life that isn't, that's escapable, that has is able to escape or has ever escaped from this all-consuming explanation. And that just means that we don't pay enough attention to how policies that might be appropriately described as neoliberalism are applied differently in different places, and how so many of the things that drive towards precarious work pre-exist um, neoliberalism. So if you pay attention to informal economic activity, for example, this has a really, really long history. And precarious life is um, has an extraordinarily long historical scope. To say that precariousness is, um, can be explained through um, neoliberalism is to miss out on those, um, that history and those differences, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting that in um, contemporary discussions of work, you, you've highlighted that precariousness is one of those things that is, you know, really kind of key. And we've seen discussions in the literature about, you know, the formation of maybe you know, a new class and a new form of class consciousness around 
precariousness and a, a precariat perhaps. And historicizing this stuff, it, I think, is, is crucial, as, as, as you, you point out. Um, I, I think the other thing going on with that um, maybe cautionary tale about a grand social theory and the need to understand um, differences as, as much as um, the kind of continuities with something like neoliberalism is the way the book shifts um, and to, to coin a cliche, it's sort of a book of, of two halves. And, and I'm interested to know how you, you sort of decided on that kind of split. And I suppose a more, if I might call it a kind of case study approach in the second half of the book. Yeah. Um, so I call it knots rather than case studies, because one of the things I wanted to pay attention to is the um, interconnections between the three things that I focused on in the second part of the book. So they are environment, technology and the informal economy. So, um, you know, it's a way to properly think through the implications of my own reasoning around complexity to try to hold on to um, and recognise that complexity and then think with it. So that would be in the case of, say, the relationships between technology and informal economic activity to think through a phenomenon like the gig economy that we started off with, which is also a way of thinking through um, gender relationships in work. So a lot of the conversation at the moment about the gig economy treats technology as an inevitability. It's just a given. We, then we live with it. And it finds the gig economy to be problematic. And indeed, it is problematic. But it's not quite as new as people think. And those the versions of the gig economy that I see being researched at the moment are very often, um, let's say, perhaps being... Okay, trying not to be, trying not to like um, misappropriate, misapportion blame here. But I think sometimes when I read stuff about the gig economy, I think, well, women have been doing de facto gig work for a really, really long time, doing rubbish cleaning jobs, being uncertain about what their future is, being sent by their, um, their employers from place to place. And that wasn't, um, there was no like, upsurge of research around that in the way that it has been now that young white men are doing a Deliveroo. And so I think there's like, there's a, a little politics around how questions come to be important at particular times and particular places. I mean, the, like the, the really obvious example is uh, in your discussion of, of craft and, and, and fashion, um, which um, I, I found particularly useful actually, because obviously, you know, we think of, um, fashion and craft as being part of, you know, maybe a creative economy, part of an emerging, uh, you know, in some ways kind of like almost sort of post-industrial um, form of economic organization where narratives um, of the craft production and parts of the fashion industry are to do with, you know, bespoke individual crafts people often enabled through uh, websites like Etsy to, you know, sell almost peer-to-peer and stuff like this. And you kind of say, well, actually, you know, we need to think about measurements. We need to think about what's going on. You know, how are our understandings of these forms of working activity, you know, even brought brought into being? And I guess that's a kind of an extension of the um, gendering you've sought to do with the gig economy. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I think about when we think about something like craft and, and fashion clothing is 
the interplay between unpaid work or forms of socialization in the home and getting paid work so to get a job at a garment factory in a special economic zone um probably a poorly paid job probably one where you have to work very long hours in very unpleasant conditions you already have to know how to sew because they're not going to do on the job training so this is about women training other women in um how to sew in order to be able to get involved in those forms of what we call adversely incorporated um, employment. I always thought that clothing is really good to think with um, when we're trying to understand the interconnections between different forms of work. Um, But I also think in in relation to your um, question about craft and fashion and the kind of creative elements to it, um, it's about foregrounding the capacity of bodies and um, the example I like a little more than the example of craft and fashion is um, an example from a paper I heard from a guy called Mark Egan and he never published it which is a shame because I think it's such an, a fantastic thing to say is if you're an aerospace engineer or a, you know your, de- your job is designing features of spacecraft you can have extraordinary knowledge and competency and a great craftability ability to do craft craftability is a new word let's use that in future Um, (laughs) but you can be in the state right at the moment at the time when you're finishing a project let's say of being incredibly nervous about putting the finishing touches because it's actually a nimble fingers job as well as a deeply uh, skilled um, job which requires a lot of training and intelligence so the state of being competent but not being competent right now strikes me as a really interesting way to think about uh, what it is to do work and I think about that myself very, very often when I'm struggling to find the way to um, you know, write a sentence, finish a chapter or something like that, that there's more contingency to our capacity to do work. I think this takes us back to the ideas around repair and what the photocopier uh, person is doing. The photocopier needs quite a skilled manipulation with an object to be able to do what they do. We have to be sort of quite careful, you know, not to miss some of the kind of key things in, in, in the book actually and I mean th- there's a lot of stuff I, I'd like to talk to you about things like bodies and, and you talk in detail about um, healthcare and the relationship between technology and, and, and health which obviously you know picks up on um, many of the themes we've already discussed about hidden deleted labour about um, the, the need to think about you know the kind of histories of work as almost as, as histories of bodies but one of the things that really comes through uh, at the very end of the book is a discussion about the environmental crisis. Um, you know, we're, we're at a moment, at least here in the UK, in in, in London, of um, protests, interventions um, around uh, the the environmental crisis. And and one of the questions that that kind of struck me w- w- was the idea of like. Are green jobs even possible? You know, is it possible to to do like a greening of the of the economy, a greening of work? Is it possible to to make the way we've organised work and our support structures like unions green? And indeed, you, you know, as as you go on in that chapter to think about, is it possible to kind of understand the very understanding we have about an environmental uh, crisis as work itself? Um, and I think that's a really kind of crucial uh, topic, both for the sake of humanity, but also like immediately, you know, in, in, in the moment we find ourselves right now. Yeah, I mean, it's really great that there is 
such an upsurge of conversation around the prospects of a transformation in how we think about environment. Um, there has been a longer kind of technocratic story about the prospect of a Green New Deal, about the prospect of greening jobs, which is referred to as the triple win, good for society, good for economy and good for environment. Um, it's a version of business as usual. It's, um, you know, making things a bit better. So it's greening car production rather than asking questions around whether um, so many new cars need to be produced. Um, and there's always a kind of a little bit of a nod to the idea that technology will save us. So geoengineering will save us by providing better ways in which we can combat um changes in the weather systems for example and very often this based on I think a claim that there's a there's a solution to problems which is not necessarily that the solution being promised is the desirable solution so it has to be a, a, a different kind of conversation about what might a less environmentally destructive way of living look like um and so the prospect of green jobs is the answer is always, well, the devil is in the detail as to what that looks like. Greening car production, which has been a conversation happening in, among car firms, but also that there's been some research around, um, is one way to think about that. But it returns the focus to factory work, to the production of, um, of consumer goods. Other conversations about green work are around kind of retrofitting um systems that we have already so making our energy production um more environmentally friendly and in some circles it's around doing less work making less stuff getting rid of forms of work so this is a debate around post work which i don't particularly discuss very much in the book um partly because i'm often a little bit shy about following utopian thinking and a bit unconvinced by that as a kind of innate cynicism to how I think about the world. And partly because sometimes the idea about having less work is based on an assumption, on a problematic assumption about what work we mean when we talk about less work. Um, so still forms of gendered and racialized forms of care work don't get removed when we talk about less work, doing less work as a way of greening the economy. Um, but as is so often the case for how I think is I don't find quick answers because I just don't think that there are quick answers to the problem of greening the economy, like the, nor to the problem of technological transformation of the economy, nor to the persistence of poor forms of informal work. And I think that's where the book is particularly strong is the sense of, you know, we, we really need, do need thinking uh, about these subjects and, you know, the, uh, whether we call it, you know, solutionism um, or, you know, a kind of technological utopianism, these things we need to treat with, you know, quite, quite serious caution because they're likely to replicate the issues that we've seen in the history of work um, that, you know, have, have kind of come to us with, with a very long standing set of, uh, structural inequalities. Now, this would be the point where I'd usually ask my guests, you know, what are you working on now? What kind of, you know, ideas have you got uh, for, for future work? But I think it's really important we talk about James Bond to, to finish. 
Yeah, always. <laughs> I'm just really interested in the conclusions of the book. Um, where you talk about the man with the golden gun, which, uh, if you know, listeners are unfamiliar with, is um, it's a you know a Roger Moore James Bond film, and it, I, I assume it was an Ian Fleming book as well. The film has aged quite badly, I'd, I'd say, as many of them have. Yeah. So, what, what does yeah. the man with the golden gun tell us about? I guess how you've answered the three questions that the book is interested in. Yeah. So. Um, in the kind of showdown of the man with the golden gun, um, James Bond goes to uh, the man with the golden gun, Francisco Scaramanga's island, um, to have the shootout, effectively. Um, but he um, gets captured in a hall of mirrors, and there are all kinds of models of Scaramanga, and he's shooting at the wrong person. Um, and that, like, I came up with this as a way to think through the problems I found in writing a conclusion um, solely because at this point of writing the book I was exhausted and my cultural references were getting smaller and smaller and I was going for easier and easier things to read and to watch um, I'm not sure that James Bond is a you know um, a productive source of um, theorizing more generally um, but the reason why that I the kind of imagery of the Hall of Mirrors um, captured me is that um, so I don't think I wrote a conclusion I think I wrote a final chapter because the more I was thinking about these questions the less I felt confident that there could be a solution or could be a simple answer one of the things that a conclusion is often doing is having spent a whole book talking about how complicated the world is to then come back and say well but nonetheless here is here are my bullet point solutions and I feel like in the study of what's wrong with work, there have been many, many kind of attempts to provide bullet point solutions to complicated problems. We see this in the ideas of the ILO indecent work. We see it in that some of the ideas about dignity work. And it's not that those aren't important and it's not that they don't do something good. But as soon as you kind of have that bullet point list of things to aspire to, You've got rid of the complexity, the complexity of the interconnections between greening work and technological change, for example. You've got rid of so much of the um, really difficult opening up of the question that the rest of the book had done. And I was struck by something um, from Isabel Stengers, which is that answers aren't found in books um, in academic books. Answers that get found in in practices. So what my book what I hope my book is trying to do or does for people who read it is to draw attention to the complexity of the problem, to ask questions in a different way, to put phenomena together and connect them in different ways, to draw on the kind of esoteric ideas that you mentioned at the start in ways that perhaps produce different thoughts for other people rather than feel like in my final chapter, I conclude by tidying all the complexity that I've paid so much attention to and done so much work to make clear.